Hey, welcome all to the Common Good Podcast. It's Monday, November 14th already, Dan. November 14th. It's been uh, a week since uh, the day when we say no more votes. You have to vote by that day, and now we'll count them apparently for a month. <laughs> a month, month's worth of counting, but we're not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to uh, let you vote after that. So we're still yeah. in the voting season. I like how somebody, I heard somebody say it the other day. They said, uh, you know, voting is now this like month and a half, two month long process. And when votes start for early voting, up until we're done counting them, could be mid-December. So, you know, it's a it's a season like, you know, yeah. you might refer to the holiday seasons. Yeah. And election season, the campaign side of things seems to start earlier and earlier. Like we're a, a week after the elections and people are already talking about 2024. So <laughs> guilty as charged. Yeah. Guilty as charged. I've already started talking about that. I'm like, you know, it's not long now until you're going <laughs> right. to, and then it's going to be a presidential election and that takes a lot. And you've got, you got all that. All right. So we're going to do a couple of our updates here on the Monday after the Tuesday where things went shockingly well, not to brag, but you and I riding on a bus, uh, were saying to people uh, that would listen to us, um, it might not be as bad as we think. Um, obviously, here on this podcast, we've been saying for months, I think the uh, Democrats could hold the House. Um, worried when the see so many of the polls that were saying, "Oh no, it's going to be it's going to be terrible," but turned out turned out not to be. Turned out that uh, yeah, um, there were a lot more people who when they chose to vote, as opposed to the opinion that they expressed to a pollster, made a different choice. Um, and you know what I don't understand about pollsters? Why don't they just ask people, who are you going to vote yeah, for? Who are you going to vote for? <laughs> like, like truly, I, we should we should have some pollsters on sometime and just say like, why the tea leaf reading, tea leaf yeah. reading here? Why like- Like the whole topics? favorability of Biden or Trump yeah. or whoever. It's like, well, you can not be super happy with Biden- and still totally. vote for Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. You know, like absolutely but not somehow a direct like, correlation. We know the percentage of people who say that they're pleased with this. Then that will determine this. And if this particular issue, like abortion or inflation, is more important to them, then they're likely to vote on that. That is just wildly not true. I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, ever and people I have talked to. Uh, and myself, you asked me about what issues matter most to me. The things I would tell you matter most and how has the Biden administration or how have Democrats reacted to that? Not favorably. Immigration, the death penalty, uh, uh, taxation, not, not at all. Have they done what I've wanted and demanded and shaken mm -hmm. a fist and gone out in protests for? I'm still going to vote for them right. <laughs> because for a whole lot of reasons of the things that they've done well and, and what the, what the alternative is, all kinds of stuff. So I mm -hmm. don't really understand. And I'm not trying to just be one of the other people jumping on pollsters, but at some point we have to say to ourselves, maybe the predictive models that go into how people answer certain questions will determine their future behavior is not all that accurate. And maybe we're just fine just asking people. And maybe the only day you should ask people is, you know, on the day of the election, because it caused all kinds of uh, decisions to be made that, that weren't accurate. Um, but having said that, at this point, it's still a pathway possible for Democrats to hold the House of Representatives. There's like 10 races I saw in a news article today. 
that they really think are still up for grabs. Um, there's like 20 or 30 that are, are not yet called for the, in the people running for the House of Representatives. But a, 20 of those or so are pretty well settled. Like one of them is for sure settled. They don't know who's going to win too early to call, but it's two Democrats running against each other in California because they have a nonpartisan, you know, uh, way of people ending up on the ballot. So you could have two Democrats or two Republicans running against each other. So it's things like that or places where it's clearly it's too early, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. But then there's 10. And if the Republicans win four of those or something like that, four or five, they're going to win. If, if uh, Democrats win six or something like that, then they're going to take control of the House by one vote, by one, <laughs> by one number, which will be terrible for either party. Yeah. Because you have, if you have zero, like literally zero margin uh, and you try to pass anything, if someone is sick and can't be there to vote, if someone chooses not to vote with you, mm -hmm. if, some, if three of them get together and form a coalition of no uh, to anything, it's just going yeah. to be unbelievable. Um, might be really, might be really good that there's such evenly divided uh, power on you know between the two houses, between the two parties in the House of Representatives, or on either side. Yeah, people but might way, have to actually work together, and get some things done. People might have to cross the aisle, and you might have to um, pass some uh, legislation that you couldn't or wouldn't have passed the other way, which could really be good. Let's start with border. Uh, changes. Let's start with immigration policy. Let's make it easier for people to legally come in the country. Something if, if friends, if, if, if you listen to the podcast, watch the live stream and you don't want to hear that phrase, um, every couple of weeks, this might not be your, <laughs> might not be your podcast. Cause I think it would be not only good for the country. I think it would be really good for the overall political system to finally take immigration off the table as a political issue and let both sides of the political spectrum come together, make it easier for people to get in the country. And, uh, and, and I don't know why Republicans keep resisting it unless they're just, you know, have some blood and soil kind of narrative that wants only certain people to be counted in this country. Because if you're worried about electoral politics, What's been proven out over the last five years is that um, immigrants to this country are willing to vote for both parties. Mm -hmm. uh, Florida has shown that. Texas has shown that. California has clearly shown that. So uh, this old notion that, well, all you need to do is pump in a bunch of you know immigrants from S Central America, South America, or uh, parts of Africa, and then Democrats are going to have a permanent majority. That's just not playing out at all. It's never been particularly true. It certainly isn't true in those those three big states, California, Texas, and yeah. Florida. And it's likely not to be true anywhere else in the country. So it shouldn't be a political issue. People should just get it solved and stop the human crisis that's happening around, around immigration. Um, but that's not where we are now, and that's not what anybody voted on. I really thought that Democrats were going to pay a price for not being better on the border than they were. Turns out Republicans tried to use that issue to punish Democrats, and they couldn't do it. And uh, it just didn't rise to the level of losing our democracy and some of the rest of it. And I wonder if some of that anti-immigration stuff backfired. Like, people saw what Ron DeSantis did totally. and saw through it as just a cruel political stunt. And so that's... Yeah, we might be concerned about the border, but that's not the way to do this. Like, yeah, 
Yeah, I guess maybe around the country, but apparently not in Florida yeah. because the guy because <laughs> the guy won. I, it's again, we talked about this on on Friday, so I don't want to just only rehash that point. But I think we shouldn't overinterpret large scale behavior into specific opinions about uh, political topics. It's really hard to say, oh, around the country, you know, in Kansas and in Maine and Vermont and Minneapolis and. Uh, West Michigan, people voted for candidates. Therefore, people think this in in America. It would just be, I just think that that kind of, it's the reverse engineering of what the what the pollsters are trying to do, where the pollsters <laughs> try to say, how do you feel about an idea? Now I'm going to interpret your future behavior to take people's past behavior and to extract out of it what they were saying. I think pe politicians really make a huge mistake when they, when they do that, even on exit polls, even if you say to somebody walking out, hey, what was it that really caused you to come and vote today? Nobody's motivated by one single thing. Everybody's a complex mix of emotions yeah. and desires and passions and worries and all that. So so this idea that we can reverse engineer what people were saying and what they were doing is, it, it's, just, it's just inaccurate. And so, uh, but it's what the political chatter class, including us, are made out of. <laughs> you know, what else would people talk about? How, how else do you interpret what what Americans think and feel? Um, yeah, we're still um, going to try to make sense of what happened, whether or not it's accurate at a large scale or not. And this is really what what human beings do, right? We're, human beings are storytelling animals, right? What we do is make stories to describe the situation we're in. That's been the human project all, all, all along, right? There's, there's been no time where since the dawning of, of conscious interaction that human beings have not been telling stories to explain their circumstance and then communicating those stories over time to one another. The stories are not always accurate that we tell about what's happening, but it's what frames the human experience. We narrate our lives in such a way that that little data points, little experiences start to make sense in certain ways. And that's that's how, how we make sense of the world, right? That's our that's our that's our frame of reference. So of course we're gonna do this. Of course politicians are gonna do it. Of course pundits are gonna do it. But we should always, you know, just keep in our minds. This is this is the postmodern side of 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 my thinking, you know, way way back in the nineties uh, when I was learning the impact of postmodern consideration of the narratives that we tell in a society is the realization that the story you're telling and the recap and the, the, the rationalization for how the world is, that's not simply based on all the information, right? Mm -hmm. And, and what, what's act, what actually happened. It's, it's an interpretive act used to make sense of the world for some moment of particular, well, postmodern theorists would say for power. That somehow people are passing along the ability of power to one another by these stories that we tell. So that's what we do, but they're not accurate. And, and this isn't just the old story of like, hey, the winners get to tell the story. That's that 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 is true as well. It's just our daily interactions, you know. And and we we reinforce this all the time, right? Kids come home from school, and parents and caregivers say to them, "How was your day?" Right. So you just experienced something for six hours. And then you came home and someone says, give me a story <laughs> to make sense of what happened to you over the last six hours and add some interpretation to it and frame it up in some way that uh, normally is going to happen in a sentence or two, 
Or for my kids, right. a single word. Fine. Fine. It was fine. <laughs> What'd you do today? Nothing. <laughs> right. You know, there's times where I think well, those kids got it. They, they've got to figure it out. Like I Look, can't I possibly interpret this. The whole, like, <laughs> you yeah. had to be there. Let me tell. Yeah, that, that's a great response. Yeah, sometimes I joke. People are like, you know, how, how was your day? I'm like, I try not to judge. I'm just trying to live in the moment. You know, <laughs> is is that what we're supposed to do? That's also a great line when a server at a restaurant comes up to you and says, "How's the food?" You know, I'm really trying to pat. I'm really trying to live outside of judgment right now. Just live in the moment. I'm chewing. Um, but this is what we do as, as human beings is we try to make sense of the world so that we have some pathway forward so that we're not living in the total um, darkness of just singular experience after, one after the other because that becomes, um, that becomes anguish, right? You can't, you can't live like that. Um, and then some of the real deep philosophers, you know what they remind us of? Oh, we're all just telling stories to avoid the dark, cold reality that we're all going to die someday. <laughs> so don't let that leave your sight. Whatever story you told yourself about how the day went, what you're going to do tomorrow, plans that you're making for vacation down the road, you're just distracting yourself from the realization that in 100 years, you're not going to be here. So, <laughs> you know, those, those, that crowd, love yeah. those guys, which is, all, which is all true. So we do this story, this storytelling narrative and... Then what we do is we end up competing stories against each other. So political work, social engagements, arguing about important social issues is deciding together which story is it that we want to live in? Which story do we think is the most powerful? Which story do we think is the most direct? And how, and how do we actually want to live in this, in this world? Um, so that's what really goes on with, with politics. And then with all the pre- uh, scripting that goes on, and then all the post-scripting that goes on uh, af after an election is people doing the things that that human beings uh, that human beings do, trying to make sense out of a bunch of data points. Okay, but having said that, really good news, folks. It was really great news, and it would even be better news if if Republicans had to had to pay a price. Dan, here's my question for you. I don't know how much you um, you know after we've been on the road for six weeks or eight weeks, whatever it was that we were out. It's kind of nice to come home and not think about this stuff over the weekend. So I don't know if, if you did or not. Uh, I tried really hard not to. Um, but it seems to me that Republicans are facing a moment where they could say to themselves, this is not going well. Since 2016, it's been uh, a series of losses. Not entirely too, true in 2020 because they did win some governorships and they did win uh, more seats in the house than than they lost they didn't take over the house for 2020 but they they did gain back some but then they mm -hmm. lost the senate and now are in, are in jeopardy of not doing nearly as well as they should have or could have in the house they lost all state legislatures so that that was a data point i heard this this morning that this is the first time since 1934 that the party who's president was in office if his first term i mean talk about your specific categories right so <laughs> um so when the president is in their first term that that party did not lose legislatures around the country the control of legislatures in fact gained them so this was a really seismic shift at some of those levels, like mm -hmm. what happened in the states as well as what happened at the federal level and what happened with governors. They won back a bunch of governors. The kinds of things that Republicans were doing in 2008 
when Obama was elected. It was a steady slide after Obama's election. And when the Democrats had control of the House and the Senate in 2008 or 2009, 2010, that they just started losing state houses and state governorships over and over and over. And that now has reversed. And this was, uh, I mean, it's possible that you could have Democrats in still in control of the House, in control of the Senate, the White House, and a bunch of state legislatures and governorships that they didn't have a year ago. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it really could be a seen in political terms as an absolute Republican wipeout. Yeah. Uh, I'm here in Michigan, and that was the case here for the first time in 40 years. Democrats held the governor's office and took over the state legislature, both chambers. And I think that's really encouraging because <laughs> at the state mm -hmm. level in Michigan and a lot of other places, uh, that's where some really bad stuff was happening, like really damaging policies. Uh, you saw, you know, anti-trans bills, um, yeah, getting up for for votes, and uh, so the state legislatures is where a lot of stuff happens. And I yep. feel like Democrats for the last few cycles have sort of dropped the ball, where Republicans have been really focused, really organized at the state and local level mm -hmm. uh, to fill those seats. It's kind of playing catch up and kind of just undoing some of the damage that's been done over the past two to six years. So it's, it's a good sign, though. It's a good sign. Hey, and, and in fact, one of the people that we uh, supported in two events in Michigan, um, Winnie Brinks, uh, is not not only won her seat to the state Senate, uh, you know, the state legislature there, but she's the head of it. She's she like she's like the the head of the state of the state senate now. Nice, uh, so yeah. really great. Yeah, she was yeah. talked about. She was bragged about on MSNBC over the weekend. So I, I try not to watch a lot, but I happened to just catch a moment, and people were like, "Okay, in Michigan, there are significantly strong leaders. Number of them turn out to be w women, from Governor Whitmer to Winnie Brinks and the uh, Attorney General and others." And, yeah. Yeah, just like a real run of these very uh, um, competent and 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 rising star uh, politicians. Yeah, uh, it's really really something pretty great. And what's neat is it's not just that they are going to vote for the Democratic platform; it's that they're good people. <laughs> like, yeah, we totally. got to meet a lot of them on the road and work yeah. with them, and they're just yeah. like really competent and kind and good people. Positive. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and that's what I think this election was about. I think ultimately around the country, people felt like it was a threat to democracy and a kind of cruelty that's been in the system for so long and people don't don't want it anymore. It, I know it's hard to put too much, as I said, you know, on a particular <laughs> right. thing. But overall, it just seems like because you have enough data points of at least the democracy-denying crowd and the election-denying crowd, and the insurrection-supporting crowd. Anybody who was in that zone either really struggled to win in races they shouldn't have, or they just flat-out lost. Yeah. So that's good news. But hey, now Laura Trump, Laura Trump, the daughter-in-law of the twice-impeached failed presidential candidate, Donald Trump, says, the lesson to be learned here is that we need more Trump. We need more Donald. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we need Trump back. That the only way we're trying to tell win. a story and make sense of this through a narrative. That's one I didn't here's expect. A, but. Here's a story from the <laughs> daughter-in-law. And, you know, as we were joking about before we started the, the video here, um, why does anybody care about the former ex-president 
you know, twice impeached guy's daughter-in-law's opinion. But apparently <laughs> she, he, I, and this is the thing about patriarchy, right? Just to, you know, make a hard turn in some people's minds if their heads just snap back and they're like, patriarchy, how do you get to this? This business about the adult or minor aged children of people as being a reflection on them, you know, like who raised these people? Like, you don't ask the question, who raised you to determine the behavior of an adult? And you don't <laughs> say, well, this person married the son of someone, therefore they have some sort of input and some sort of, uh, some sort of power. It just makes absolutely no sense that we uh, act like people who are uh, related by marriage or birth to someone makes them significant to the conversation that they're having. But we tend to do this stuff in our society all the time, especially with politics um, and, and somehow with entertainment, kind of those, those, the, where those two mm -hmm. worlds blend, that um, who your parent is or who your child is or how your child lives and behaves is somehow some reflection on you. And, you know, for all of us who have parents, which is pretty much everyone I know, and many people who have children, no, you don't have any control over what your parents do or what your, what your children <laughs> do. Like, and then let alone taking credit for it. <laughs> I, it's just, it's, it's really shocking, right? It, 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 it just comes up over and over. Well, but anyway, take a page out of Trump's book. If the kids are really great kids, you take credit. If they're bad kids, it's their fault. So. You know, I know what you're alluding to. Did you hear? I actually heard the watch the video recording of him saying that in the interview. Did you? Did you see about his endorsements? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's not like people are uh, are are summarizing his comments. He literally said, "I th we should play the video at some point. I should pull I, that up. Yeah. If I win, I should get the credit. If they lose, no. If they win, I should get the credit. All the credit. If they lose, I shouldn't get any of the blame." <laughs> statement right to right to the reporter straight looking straight in her eyes says it to her just an amazing like talk about a guy who is just mocking all of this constantly <laughs> and then okay one more tra uh, uh, tr trump ran here it dawned on me maybe thursday all the candidates that trump really got behind are people that are made in his mold. Mm -hmm. Celebrities who have no capacity to serve as a government official or politician. And it's like he wants to run, pe wanted people like that to run to make him look like it's a normal thing for someone to be so incompetent. You just go down the line of the people that he picked over and over. From J.D. Vance, who did win, is going to be a terrible senator, Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, <laughs> Carrie Lake, um, all a number of other people that didn't even get through their primaries. They're all people who had some sort of celebrity around them mm -hmm. and are statedly like, this isn't the area I've ever worked in. I've never done anything like this before. And that's what makes me the, the right candidate is I'm fresh. Mm -hmm. I'm a fresh approach. It's just utterly ridiculous and i'm so glad that it well herschel walker still could be the next senator from arizona georgia yeah terrifying thank you thank you from georgia and here's here's what is terrifying carrie lake running for governor in arizona could win jd vance in ohio running for senate did win 
Herschel Walker could win. <laughs> sure, Mehmet Oz lost. Trump could go three for four out of those, or he could go one for four. And the votes have already been cast in the Kerry Lake and, and Hobbs uh, race in, for governor in Arizona. It's already settled in Pennsylvania, but they're still yet to decide how it's going to go in Georgia. And so all of this, this bubble could move either direction on, are we going to have incompetent celebrities be our politicians? And is that a movement that's afoot? And I was really afraid a week ago that that's what we were going to end up with was a shift to just get the celebrities that are incompetent. And look, famous people in other industries run for office all the time, right? Sonny Bono was a Republican, you know, <clears throat> Sonny and Cher was a Republican from somewhere, maybe Arizona, uh, and, and turned out to be, you know, a functional senator uh, <laughs> or, or congressman. Al Franken, my senator for a short bit of time, was a comedian, turned out to be a very serious politician. Arnold Schwarzenegger was whatever Arnold Schwarzenegger is, a bodybuilder or actor or just influencer, was, was a governor. Ronald, like people come into politics from other fields. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you, can't, you don't have a role in our political society as an elected official unless you're X, Y, or Z. But there's a big difference between those people having been in one industry and taking very seriously governing and politics and and social and political cultural issues and people that have no interest in it at all until the race is announced. Like their mm -hmm. first thing is elect me, right? They're, it's not like even our governor here in Minnesota for a while was a, a former professional wrestler named Jesse Ventura. And yeah. he at least for years after his wrestling career was a talk show host on political issues and was the mayor of a small town. Uh, outside of Minneapolis. So he was doing the things, right? He was like mm -hmm. in the world, he was in the field. That's one thing. Trump's candidates, these and this batch of new Republican candidates, these are folks with just no uh, conversation. Now, now, maybe Carrie Lake, because she was a newscaster, did. Um, but her whole posture is, um, elect me because I'm not a professional politician. That is just that that approach is yeah. uh, to me is just seemingly nonsense. Like I'm not saying people have to have only done politics their whole life. It's probably best if they've had some varied experience. Mm -hmm. But this thing that the people are running on, that Republicans are running on, just makes makes me mad. Just well, it's sort of the self fulfilling prophecy of the Republican Party that the government is always failing. Yeah, the government can't do anything right. And then they elect people that <laughs> just run things into the ground, like you know Trump nominating you know, the guy for the EPA that was an oil tycoon. You know, like you can't yeah. make this stuff up. Like in the previous years, he was determined to you know undermine the EPA in every way possible, and then yes. he gets to be in charge of it and just guts it from the inside. And then oh, I wonder why our government doesn't function all that well. Right, that they they want to destroy the government to show that the government can't do can't do good and big things, yeah. and that used to be the argument in in our country. Right, there there was a period of time when it was kind of the the FDR Roosevelt movement of the 30s and 40s that said, look, the way this country is going to function is with a engaged, active, sizable federal government that's going to do big things, and so lots of things happened out of that from. 
Social Security and Medicare and the Highway Act and uh, the growing military, like lots of government engagements in making our world function and work. And that perspective was then countered through the 60s and 70s by a Republican movement that said, no, 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 we need to get government out of all that business and let private industry. So that's held by lots of people, but really kind of figureheaded by Ronald Reagan. Not only in his election in 1980, but he was actually one of those working voices of that through the through, through the 60s and 70s. So you had these two big competing ideas, how much government should you, and we sometimes would be talked about as big government and small government and President Bill Clinton was famous for having said in his State of the Union address, the era of big government is over. And that's sort of a wink to that that era. And then Biden comes back in and he's like, no, we're back into the FDR business. And what I mean is the government's going to play a significant role on the things that the government should be playing a significant role on because we can't just have other parts of our society having to go it alone and people need support. There's there's that argument, right? And that's that's what frames up for a lot of people, their understanding of politics in America, federal politics and so on. And then there's the anarchist side and crowd, right? The people that are like, oh, I don't really care about how much the government does or doesn't do. We just want to disrupt it and burn it down. Yeah. And start with people that don't aren't beholden to that, don't think about that, whatever, however they however they view it. That group is what's been growing over the last 20 years. There's now a sizable number of people who feel that. And that's the group that Trump and people on the political left have also been going after, you know, the kind of it's all rigged, everything's rigged crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, that that democracy and capitalism are interlinked and it's all only exists to benefit the wealthy and that there's power brokers involved in all of this that are making every decision for their own financial benefit to reap, you know, to rape the earth of its resources and to damage people like that, that perspective. And then, you know, the myriad of those on the, on the political right. So, and that group's always been around, <laughs> like we mm-hmm. shouldn't, you know, democracy is not really a thing that we can live with anymore. And it's because it's just been, it's been taken over by an, uh, a, group of, you know, people only benefiting themselves. But under Trump and under the current movement of the Republican Party, it's become so much more normative that that's the, that that's the crowd that um, so many of these candidates come out of. So when someone runs as, I'm not a politician and I'm going to be in here to shrink it or clean it up or drain the swamp mm-hmm. or fill in the blank, that's what they're getting at, right? That's that That's that anarchist side of of things. Uh, and, and this election, I think, was not about big government versus not big government or big industry, the old FDR Reagan fight. It was how much power are we going to give to the election denying, tear it all down, break it all, don't fulfill it, and just, just move all this stuff to elected officials and judges. Um, and that really started to, to clarify for people with the Dobbs decision and, and some of the other some of the other decisions that they watched um, Republicans trying to support that it felt to people like what are what are we doing what are we yeah. doing <laughs> it didn't it didn't feel like America and it felt like um, there was a path there was another story being told that just had nothing to do with with uh, with America and all the rest of that yeah and I think it's possible that there was. A fair number of people that were, I don't know, fair weather fans, like going along with it while it was fun and it's just two teams yep. duking it out. And then all of a sudden there's real life consequences 
And people start to step back and say, like, well, maybe we shouldn't keep leaning into these election denying, yeah. like, bullies. Because that's yeah. what a lot of them ended up being is like picking on trans kids and picking on totally. minorities and immigrants and asylum seekers. And yeah, a lot of people have been looking for an off ramp for a while, anyways. And mm-hmm. I've said, yeah, that's. That's a bit too much for me. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think, it, and I think it built, has built over time, right? It's not just hey, what happened in the last three months, right? It's what has this story been for the last five, seven years, mm-hmm. and just don't want that to happen a- anymore. You know, it's. Um, I, I hope, at least, yeah. I hope that's what uh, you know. As we as we narrate our own sort of version of why do we think people behave the way they do, you know. <laughs> right. So in other words, people, everybody came home from the election. Uh, you know, from the voting booth, and someone said, "Well, you know, how was your day? What'd you do yeah. today?" <laughs> uh, it's it's a little hard to describe what you did, uh, what what you did today. But here's what the real shocker is to me, Dan. For for on this Monday, the fourteenth, you know, week after election day, if Democrats don't maintain control of the House of Representatives, it's because of not electing Democrats in what are often referred to as blue states. New York, Oregon, California. Those 10 seats that are up for grabs in those states, a couple of them in Arizona. Losses from Democratic sitting Congress people in New York, four seats, four or five seats in California is what's put it in this place. Had Republicans only performed as well as they did in previous elections, even though there was some redistricting in New York, Democrats would have won. But for some reason, Republicans in these blue states outperformed previous election behaviors and flipped those seats. It's really quite shocking. And Mm -hmm. if we keep saying things like, I live in a blue state or I live in a red state, there aren't any states in our country where there's 100% uh, of one party or the other. Even in the bluest of blue and the reddest of red states, there's people who are from the other political side who are elected and are representing uh, constituencies in those places. So for people who think that what's going on here is just that red states are doing something and blue states are doing something, that, that is... For all the stories that we want to tell to try to make sense of the world, that one is not accurate, and we really, I think, should should cease from telling from telling that story that there's red states and blue states. Yeah, and you might want to say, well, who's the governor and who controls the legislature and how you know? Okay, I get, I get if that's what people are talking about, but I don't think that's how most people talk about it. I think they think, well, all the people in New York are going to vote for for Democrats, and in California, mm-hmm. they're going to all vote for Democrats. Well, they certainly didn't. And congressional seats were flipping in those places. Had they held those seats, Democrats, this would have they would have they would have been up two hundred and thirty seats in the House. <laughs> Unbelievable that what it's coming down to is if people, if Democrats in California, will win their seats. If Katie Porter, one of our favorites around here, wins her seat in California, it's going to be a big indicator. If uh, Democrats maintain control yeah. of the House, and if Lauren Boebert in Colorado, a Republican and a deep Trumpist Christian nationalist, she could lose her seat 
in that uh, traditionally red uh, area yeah. in Colorado, which is now a state that people want to call blue. So this red blue business, uh, it it it's not it's not descriptive in any useful way, right? For what's actually going on in the country, and it's a reminder of just the razor thin margins that so many of these races are running on, and uh, you know, on the tour, our friend Rob would talk about acupunctural uh, change, this idea yeah. that like just a tiny nudge in the right direction uh, can change huge outcomes. The swing of political power in the whole country yeah. is coming down to a handful of races and a handful of votes. And uh, yeah, I don't want to say that Democrats in some of these states got lazy or cocky or what happened there, but so yeah, I'm not close. casting any, uh, yeah. any shade on these people at all. Like, hey, you should have worked harder. You should, I'm yeah, just Katie saying, Porter is awesome. We support her and working really not, hard. Yeah, she, <laughs> she's also got a day job that she's working yeah. really hard at. Patrick Maloney worked really hard in, in, in New York, even though he lost. The point is not did they work hard or not work hard. The point is these places that we can tell ourselves are settled yeah. are not settled. Mm hmm. There's still votes, there's still races, all this stuff matters. So what we need to do is not assume on hardly any races and don't give up on any. You always see every election, you hear these stories like, here's a candidate who had a 5% chance of winning and then they won by, you know, 35 votes and this, this kind of thing. And there's, and the other way, here's somebody who you totally thought was going to win and it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. they, they, they didn't win. So we can't see the world, uh, the political world, as if it's settled and fixed. And this just is a place where that is what happens. It doesn't, it doesn't do us well. So all of our California friends, all of our New York friends, yeah, don't, don't overly cheer on your, your blueness of your state um, <laughs> because it's not, uh, it's not an accurate reflection, even though you put up these maps and we have one up right now and they get marked as red or blue, depending on the, the winner of this past election, uh, like at the Senate level or yeah. the, for the state legislature or something, we tend to do that. And you tend to block the entire state, you know, uh, outline in one color or the other, which creates a, a picture in our brains. That's not, uh, that's not, yeah reflective of and certainly you know doesn't help people to to know how to move forward in the world right and we talked a bit about this on friday the idea of like a mandate based on number of you know seats yeah. won and that sort of thing and i think this really shows that neither side has received any sort of mandate and that means for democrats and republicans like We've got to be focused on the best ideas, convincing the average Americans that these are good ideas. And yep. I think uh, both sides have kind of run on fear, like we just can't mm -hmm. let the other team win. I think yep. Democrats have presented and implemented more actual solutions to problems lately, mm -hmm. um, but they got to stay on that and they got to convince people that these are good ideas. These are the things that are working. And I just haven't seen that from the Republican side at all. It's, I yeah. haven't heard an idea. I haven't heard a, no. like a plan. How, how are you going to fix inflation? <laughs> like what? <laughs> you know, look, okay. So, so Republicans in 2020 and 2022 
are going to have won 25 or so House seats, which is a lot, right, over those two elections. So they, Trump lost in 2020, but Republicans gained more seats in the, in the House. Lost the Senate, but they gained more seats in the House. And this year, the same thing could happen. They, they'll pick up some. They're, you know, Democrats had a 13 seat lead and now they may lose it or only win it by one, one seat. So for some reason, in the middle of all that nonsense, people are still flipping these seats from Democrats over to Republicans, right? And as you say, they, there was no, there was no plan in 2020. They literally did not have a platform. <laughs> which often a political party has. And Trump just said, there is no platform. We're not even going to have a platform committee. I am the platform. Vote yeah. for me. That's that. End of story. I mean, again, just the brazen nature of we don't care about any of this stuff. Just burn it down and let me light mm -hmm. the match. And then this year, their pitch was, put us in Congress so that we can show how bad the Biden administration is. So we yeah. can hold hearings. So we, and I, it's not, <laughs> so we can impeach Biden. So we can impeach Biden. That's your it's, plan. <laughs> yeah. It's not just uh, us that is saying that. The people who I saw uh, today and over the weekend on Republicans who you know run the Senate Electoral Committee and the House Electoral Committee, they're saying it like, we can't just be running low-grade candidates and not have a message. And our message can't be, look how bad the Biden administration is doing. Um, you have you have to actually get out there and work on some issues. And Democrats are trying hard to say, look at all the things we did: infrastructure passing, prescription bills, student loan uh, deferment and and cancellation, the Chips Act that keeps uh, manufacturing in the United States, like a whole bunch of things that are insulin. Uh, uh, insulin uh, capping of the price for for seniors, like things that really matter to people. And yet there's still so many people who don't even see that as the, uh, uh, the, the, the primary you know, uh, rationale for voting for, for Democrats. It's really quite remarkable. Yeah. yeah, and on the flip side, there's people that think, well, that's why there's inflation. We spent too much on infrastructure. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Which, oh my, okay, Friday's coming. We can have that conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's not why. Yeah, that's, that's All right, good. was that good for today? It's hey, great. tomorrow, uh, if if Trump still makes his announcement at eight PM Central Time, nine nine Eastern, uh, we're gonna we're gonna do a live stream of that. So um, and kind of talk over the guy, because I think his big announcement is, "I'm apologizing for all the wrong that I've done to this country." <laughs> My deepest and sincere apologies. I'm turning myself into the Justice Department, and I'm going to be criminally. I'm going to confess to my criminality. And I that's finally, what I think the announcement is going to be. I finally flipped that Bible the right side and read it, and I am hey. repenting and. I confess. <laughs> I repent. Lock me up. That's what he's going to do. He's going to start the lock me up chant. <laughs> lock uh, me so, up. <laughs> so that's what I think's coming tomorrow. And uh, I can't wait to be on to watch him uh, you know, confess his wrongdoings. Yeah, so join us tomorrow. And uh, as always, if you could head on over to YouTube and subscribe, that'd be helpful. And you know, just hit play. Watch and, a bunch of videos. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you have, if you were a regular podcast listener and you know, missed the last couple months of podcasts, that's because we were on the road and you can see a lot of those live streams and events and confronting Christian nationalism trainings on the YouTube channel. So that's what we've been doing for the last couple months. Tons of content up there. So, check so that much out. hours, hours of Christian nationalism <laughs> enjoyment. Yeah. Okay. See you, buddy. Bye, everybody. Bye.